0: Today's reading is from Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 2, 1.1 through 2.11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I plied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said to my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, brought ma- I bought male and female slaves and have slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. I know, I know that was a long text. It trains trains us in discipline to listen to God's word in larger chunks, but I think it's helpful as we come to this book to hear that passage in its in its entirety. There, at least a good chunk of Ecclesiastes. We only have one Sunday here in Ecclesiastes, and we ask the question when we come to this book: What is life? We hear that it's short. We hear that life is like smoke; it's like a vapor. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or as some have said, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. What is life? It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Who can even try to understand it? And yet, in the midst of our lives, we still live with meaning. Whether we admit it or not, we're all coming through a lens, some sort of window in which we're looking at the rest of life, interpreting it with meaning. But are we just chasing after the wind? Is there meaning? Is anything worth anything in life? Well, that's the question of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Well, this past week, quite a few of us on staff read this article from Christianity Today um, called The Gospel of Gatsby and Draper. Um, there's <laughs> I know plenty of you have heard about the, the, the new uh, Great Gatsby movie that's out in theaters. Yet another remake right, of The Great Gatsby And there's also the critically acclaimed TV show, Mad Men. And what's intrigued me about this article is it brings two characters and shows their similarity. It takes Jay Gatsby and Don Draper. Many of us aren't as familiar with Don Draper. He's from Mad Men, and he's this uh, advertising guru. But they both begin with a dreary past, this dark beginnings, and a terrible childhood. And they become self-made men. They're attractive, you know, they're successful. They're powerful. They've got everything pretty much the world has to offer. And then the article says this. We love this kind of thing. The person who comes from nothing. But what's it like to be on the other end? What happens if you spend your existence making yourself only to look at your life and realize that you hate everything about it, everyone in it, that the position you're in embodies everything you hate? Do you want to be the self? You made. You know, it doesn't take long when watching uh, either the great Gatsby or uh, uh, Mad Men to find that Jay Gatsby and Don Draper would easily cry out with the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 2, verse 17 I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Is anything really worth anything? And some of us this morning, we felt this tension in our lives. We wake up, we take our first breath, right, as we're sitting in bed. We go and put our clothes on, and then we go to work. We go to an occasional meeting. Then we come home, we have the same arguments we've had with our spouse over and over again, or with our friends over coffee. Then we fall to the same temptation we have again and again. And then we do some laundry, and then we go to bed. <laughs> And then we wake up, and we do it all over again, day after day after day. And then we die, and then our kids pick up the baton, and then they go to work, they go to meetings, and they do laundry, and so on. I mean, this is the story that Ecclesiastes is portraying, and it's depressing. It's not something that's very uplifting. It's not something that puts a smile on our face. But also hear this. Some of you may be asking that question. Is anything worth anything in our life? Well, I want you to know that you're not alone in asking that question. Scripture, God's Holy Spirit as he was guiding this writer, thought it was important enough, had enough reasoning behind it, thought it was a critical enough question to ask in community that we have a whole book that's captured this question and its answer. The book of Ecclesiastes. And I like to think of the author of Ecclesiastes as this wise old crotchety man who's well worn with years and his wisdom is hidden behind the bleak pessimism of his outlook on life you see we could find him well worn in his eyes sitting on a rocking chair and as he looks back on his life he looks less back with a grin as he does with a groan but he doesn't want us to make the same mistakes he's made who is this crotchety old wise guy well Some really smart folks have said that it's Solomon. I mean, right? He was the king of Israel. He was the son of David. He had access to much wealth, great resources to expend in various pleasures. But the author never tells us who he is. He calls himself the preacher. And actually, the book of Ecclesiastes, that word Ecclesiastes, when translated in Greek, actually means the preacher. And so as we walk through Ecclesiastes this morning, that's who we're going to call him. The preacher and as he looks back on his life, he asks the question is anything worth anything, but he doesn't only look back. He looks forward He looks forward to his children to his grandchildren. He looks forward to you and me because he knows that every human being Who lives life on what we call earth? wrestles through this question And so as the Holy Spirit guides him in this journey in search of meaning we get to peer in so let's look together imagine at the very beginning of the book this old crotchety wise guy sitting in his rocking chair and then he leans over as we're sitting there kind of at grandpa's feet and he pulls off his glasses and he looks you in the eye his eyes well worn with years probably well worn with tears from the pain he's felt and he says life under the sun is vanity And you go, wow, thanks, Grandpa, this is great, I love coming over to your house, you've always got the greatest of stories, I look forward to a great life, thanks, Gramps. Um, Well, the phrase, life under the sun, it shows up around, I think, yeah, 29 times in this simple little book, and it simply means the chaos we call our everyday life on this planet Earth, ever since the fall of humanity, we experience this day-to-day vanity. He proclaims look at chapter 1 verse 1. He says the words of the preacher the son of David king of Jerusalem Vanity of vanities says the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity It's pretty bleak And this word vanity It shows up. It's one of the most important words actually of this entire book It shows up around 37 times in this wise guy's musings and it's the hebrew word hevel hevel different translators have tried to capture the meaning by using a physical or an image called smoke or vapor. Other translators have captured it as meaningless, like the NIV. It's the idea that heaven is temporary. It's illusory. It looks like you can reach out and grab it, but you find that your hands are left empty. It makes promises that it can't deliver, and so it feels like life is absurd. Interestingly enough, if you think about it, this, it's, it's interesting how the Old Testament uses words. And it's the same word used for Abel. Do you remember him at the beginning of the book of Genesis? He's the first, one of the first children of Adam and Eve. And he becomes a martyr. He's senselessly murdered by his brother Cain. Abel. And some say looking at his life. This is the perfect example of the vanity, the life under the sun that we know. It was, sh- it was cut short with injustice. It seemed pointless, meanings, inconsequential. So why does everything in our life appear to be vanity? Our old preacher, he tells us in these first 11 verses that if we we know life, and we only know it through our five senses, our our sight, our smell, our our taste, our our, our hearing, and our touch, if those are the only faculties by which we explore the world, we're going to see that nothing matters. Because it seems so meaningless. It seems so broken. You work your butts off, and then you die, and nothing changes. He says, the wind keeps blowing. The rivers, they keep running to the ocean, but the ocean never fills. It's this monotonous misery. And the message, I think, captures verse 11 of chapter 1 really well. when, When it says, nobody remembers what happened yesterday, and the things that will happen tomorrow, nobody will remember them either. Don't count on being remembered. You see, our minds, they're going to degenerate. Our bodies, they fail. And death rules over everything. Everything feels temporary. If all we have are our five senses, everything dissipates like smoke. And it's here that the preacher, he does us a huge service because he explores every avenue Of experience to find meaning, to find fulfillment through the series of his five senses, and he comes up empty. And we can look on and find ourselves in his searching. We can find ourselves in the various avenues by which he's seeking to find meaning here by himself. After each one, he comes to the same conclusion: I still feel empty. It's like swallowing a gust gust of wind. Our our, our stomachs are still hungering for something more, still aching for meaning. And just to get a taste of a couple of these things that he journeys through, we're going to look at three smoky things. Three smoky things that leave us feeling empty. Wisdom, pleasure, and success. Now, this first we hear that wisdom will leave you empty. And when I first was reading this, I thought, what? Wisdom's going to leave me empty? I just, we just spent time in Proverbs that said, seek wisdom above all else, right? Well, it was cherish it more than gold. But here the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher Says, wisdom is going to leave you empty. How is this possible? Well, the writer here, he's talking about knowledge, intellect, a philosophical framework, smarts by themselves. If it's just about getting really smart, really about understanding things, and, and we know that there, there is such a thing as difference as we learn from Paul and the writer, or in the writer in 1 Corinthians, his letters to the church in Corinth that there's a difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, right? Godly wisdom actually guides us in a deeper relationship with who God is. Where worldly wisdom is just about merely knowing, about puffing up, about pride, about deep smarts for the sake of smarts. But here we're reminded that whether you have a high school diploma or whether you have a PhD, we're all going to die. (laughs) We're all... Going to die If our intellect is all that matters to us then nothing really matters why because eventually people are going to forget your accomplishments Your mind itself is going to stop working People will forget your publications and generations will pass without ever remembering how smart you were Verse 17 and verse 18 of chapter 1 he says and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. Yeah, he admits later that wisdom is better than folly. I mean, there's certain outcomes that feel better. But they won't bring you meaning and fulfillment. It'll leave you empty if wisdom is all you want alone. A person, uh, our culture would maybe say is one of the smartest men that ever lived in human history was Socrates, right? I mean, if you've had taken any history class talking about the history of humanity, most of the times they bring up Socrates as one of the brightest figures in our history. And how did his end come about? It was kind of absurd, really. He commits suicide, sort of. He's, he's, in, a, he's in a courtroom and he could have gotten out of the case. But he sabotages the sentence, so that he, ex- he is sentenced to die because he is so sick and tired of life and he longs for death. His smarts and his insight could not bring fulfillment and meaning, but maybe, just maybe, death would bring something better because everything else under life felt vain, felt like vanity. And so he asks, I mean, if one of the smartest guys that our human history will point to says that everything's vanity to the point that he sabotages his own trial. Is anything worth anything? Next, if you run from the life of the mind to the life of the self-indulgent body to pleasure, you'll always be running. You'll be chasing, as he says, chasing after wind, running in a fog. And this is what so many of us give our lives to, don't we? We give our lives to comfort. We escape difficult moments through laughter rather than actually thinking through the phrases that are actually being said. We, we overindulge in food, drink, or sex, hoping that we'll finally feel full. Well, the preacher, he tried that all too. Look in verses, verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, in my heart, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And if you skip to verse 8, he gives into as much sex as he wants. He had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And when you get to verse 11, we hear again, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun when we live our lives for indulgence, when we live our lives for comfort, we're never going to find the meaning and fulfillment that our hearts are longing for. We can't live our lives as though there is no tomorrow, that there is no eternity, although that's what much of our pop songs talk about. With the four on the floor beat bumping in the background, there is no tomorrow, all we have is tonight, right? So let's enjoy one another. You may have a momentary high at the party, but you feel like... You feel the emptiness the next day from your hangover, from drinking too much. You may feel like you are super fashionable when you go to the party and everybody is affirming your great taste in clothing, but when the credit card bill comes, the anxiety arises because your bill is through the roof. When all that matters is feeling good, then nothing will feel good forever. And isn't this the story of addicts, Right? The same pleasure never fully fulfills the way the first one did, or the second one did, or the third. And so it has to be more. It has to be more. It has to be more. And if you go to any rehab, you'll see that pleasure will not fulfill. Pleasure cannot fulfill the deepest longings of our heart. Yeah, it may work for a moment, but eventually it'll destroy you. Is anything worth anything? In a room with professionals, what about success, right? We've got a lot of younger professionals, those who have been in the the workforce for a while. What if your life's all about your work and your wealth, your fame and your fortune? Well, it's all to smoke and mirrors. (laughs) The preacher even chased this and he jumps into the rat race. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. And in verse 11, this is also part of the the whole encompassing of his life that he's called meaningless. In verse 18, he tells us about how limited success is. No matter how much he does in his life, after he's done, after he dies... It goes on to the next schmuck, right? Who's probably going to screw it up after you're dead, whether it's your children or some other crazy person. They're going to wreck your success that you've done. You have no control over it. If if success is all that your life is about, then your life will be about nothing. Because when you die, it will end and it will be over. No matter how hard you work, no matter what you build, no matter what you achieve, it always will leave you longing for more success. This is the nature of of putting success at the center of your world. Is anything worth anything, really? Well, as we said, the message of the preacher, it isn't necessarily a feel-good sermon. And it's kind of strange when it's fit within the canon of the Bible. He doesn't talk a ton about God, but he talks about the emptiness of the rest of life. There are certain moments where he has these, um, these patches of god where he's highlighting God's work in the midst of emptiness. But anything we try to pursue, he's saying, will leave us empty, and then we die. It's an absurd existence. If this is all there is, if it's just these five senses that we lean into. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He actually says, amidst all this smoke, there's something more. Life under the sun is vanity, unless there is one over the sun. Unless there is something more. And I, and I can imagine the old guy locks in on us, on the rocking chair. And he begins to smile with us. Because in all of this conversation, he's talking about life under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. And we begin to ponder, what if there's something over the sun? What if there's more than what we just perceive with our five senses? What if there's something that we must trust, even though with our five senses it feels meaningless many times? And here he begins to smile because we're learning to ask the right questions. We learn the greatest lesson of all, that life is meaningless unless one thing, unless God exists, unless he's good, unless there is someone over the sun that's brought meaning to this world. If we're all just organized dust and blood, then life Is meaningless if there's no God and death is God and smoke is the final metaphor to define our existence Then there is no meaning in life whatsoever if you ask any atheist who holds to a coherent worldview They won't disagree with this And this is why I've always appreciated Nietzsche He was one who really embraced the atheistic worldview a broken man But at the end of the day, he would say that his ethics were unimportant. What mattered was the will to power. Whatever it was you needed to do to make you stronger, whether it was lie, cheat, steal, abuse the weak, whatever it took, that's what actually matters in the evolutionary process. If there is no God, if it is just really about me and my existence and my succession, then ethics go by the wayside. Love is equal to hate. if it it helps you in your purposes. Justice has no bounds. It has no meaning. And compassion is irrelevant unless, of course, it makes you feel good for a temporary period of time. If it makes you feel good about yourself, then it could be worth it because it's improving your self-being. This is the coherent worldview if God does not exist. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, we hear the conclusion of our old, wise, crotchety man Even though life can feel meaningless at times, he says in verses 13 and 14, the final words of the book, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. If you take uh, the first few verses of Ecclesiastes and the last few verses and you smack them together, and you hear the message of the book, it could very well sound like everything is meaningless unless God exists. This is the summation of the book. Everything is meaningless unless God exists because God is actually looking into your life. He cares. He's watching you, and he's guiding you towards meaning. Remember this. And in the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, he says, remember your creator, which means there's a design, there's a purpose. And he's saying... That, that we should stand in awe of him. This is what this language of fear is representing. Language of awe. Amazement at a creator God that has a purpose. And we stand in awe, walking in line with his design that's revealed in his commands. It's sobering to think that we're going to actually stand before an almighty God, the creator of the universe one day, knowing that he will bring into account everything we've done, whether it's been done in the presence of community, publicly, or in the privacy of our own homes. But it's also invigorating on, a completely, uh, on, a, on the flip side of the coin because we see here that God cares. If he didn't care, why would he ever judge? If he didn't care what happened to his creation, why would he ever encourage a way through commandments and so on? Is he really just that destructive and evil that he's just trying to put pressures on us? Or does he really long for the flourishing of his creation? Every action and non-action is meaningful to our creator. And he cares enough to guide us towards what is good. Is anything worth anything? You better believe it is. Whether you love your wife or leave her matters. Whether you steal from your boss at work or seek excellence matters. Whether you exploit the poor or stand up for the weak and vulnerable, it matters if God exists. We aren't left in the dark if we have the eyes to see the one who's over the sun. And if this is true, if God cares that he's actually going to bring every deed that has been done in public or in private And assess whether it was good or evil in line with his design or towards destruction. Then it will affect how we live today. And I think if this old man were to guide us to live with meaning and purpose. He would give us three important takeaways. And you can see them uh, just kind of littered throughout these 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. And the first is don't ask empty things to fill you. Don't ask empty things to fill you. If If wisdom, pleasure, or success are all that matter in your life, then nothing will really matter. If they're the chief goal of your existence, you'll become so consumed with chasing after wind that you'll miss true wisdom. You'll miss lasting pleasure. You'll miss lasting success. Life's absurd enough to try to fill it with empty things. And okay, maybe it's not one of these three. You can say, oh, I'm safe. It wasn't one of these three. No. Think about yourself. What is it you're chasing other than the one that's over the sun? What is it you're asking to fill you? For John Keats, you know, we're in a poetry series, right? So every now and then I like to bring in a brilliant poet of our past. And for John Keats, he was a poet of the Romantic period. He said he chased after wine, women, and snuff. You know, this was a popular poem, Uh, He says, give me wine, women, and snuff until I cry out, hold enough. You may do so, sans objection, till the day of resurrection. For bless my beard, they I shall be my beloved Trinity. There's an honesty about his longings, right? An honesty about what he holds at the center of his life that is smacking us in the face because so many of us aren't willing to be honest about What is our Holy Trinity in our lives? When John Keats was young, he actually contracted tuberculosis. And he dies at the age of 25. Very young. And uh, his poetry wasn't too famous until after he died, and now it's one of the most popular. He's one of the most popular poets in our English literature that we still discuss today. But his last days... His last days were filled with him weeping when he awoke from his sleep because he was so tired of his life. There was nothing in life that was meaningful. He wanted to die that every time he woke up, he was disappointed he was still alive. He chased after wind and longed for death in the end. I mean, we cannot make created things feel what only the Creator can it's as augustine once said our hearts they're restless right until they find their home in thee don't ask empty things to fill you but the preacher says something not too many preachers will which is a shame he says do enjoy life under the sun don't ask empty things to fill you but do enjoy life under the sun You know, once we stop making God's good gifts ultimate things, then we're able to enjoy them as the good things that they are. Wisdom isn't inherently terrible. Pleasure is actually a good thing. And success is something good to long for and work towards. But when it's your ultimate thing, it destroys you. Oftentimes throughout history, the church has kind of overreacted, become known more for its asceticism, Well, if there's a possibility that we could make this everything, then let's make it nothing and never involve ourselves whatsoever. Let's make monasteries so men have to isolate themselves from every pleasure possible. And nunneries so that women have to do the same. We may very well know to abstain from certain things, but do we enjoy life under the sun? Do we take time to actually enjoy good things? We all know life can be hard sometimes. It can be hard to make ends meet. It can be hard to figure out. It can be hard to live through the pain. But don't let death destroy everything in life. The preacher says in chapter 2, verse 24, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? He says that again and again in chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and even chapter 11. It's this reoccurring refrain causing one scholar to even write, The preacher spends a great deal of time commenting on the twisted realities of a fallen world. But this does not blind him to the beauty of the world God created or cause him to despise God's good gifts of human relationships, food, drink, and satisfying labor. These are to be received humbly and enjoyed fully as blessings from God. And so we live in this tension. On the one hand, okay, don't make these good things ultimate things, but do enjoy these good things. And how do we live within this tension? Well, he says in chapter 11, verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. The key comes from his third takeaway. Live life with the end in mind. Live life with the end in mind. Well, about two weeks ago, I lost my first grandparent. Um, My grandpa Brock, after a long life, uh, lost his batter with Alzheimer's disease. Um, he was one who knew how to live with the end in mind. Um, even in the final years of his Alzheimer's, you know, he couldn't remember his kids' names as is common, but he would still go around the unit asking people how he could pray for them. He couldn't remember a whole lot of anything, but he would still come around and ask how he could be praying for you. And even in, as the, the, the Alzheimer's disease was progressing, I remember three times in, in a matter of an hour my grandpa came up to me and quoted John chapter 10, you know, there is no, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he goes, we have to tell people about this. We have to tell people about this. He, his whole life was wrapped up in the gospel. And I remember even once when my grandpa said that uh, God cares for the ones he loves. I was like seven or eight years old and I responded as a smart aleck, you know, of course, right? Um, and I said, well, grandpa, if God cares for you so much, why do He let you go bald? And he looks at me, one crazy eye, he had a crazy lazy eye, it was awesome. And he was looking at my cousin with the lazy eye and staring right at me with his good eye. And he said, God doesn't cover the ones he loves. He wants to remove the hair so he has direct contact with his, his loved ones. You know, he, he wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But his life was surrounded with the gospel and he sought to make the end, the focus of his life here and now. And he always reminded his grandkids of that. Your life is short. Make the most of it for the gospel now. There will be a day where Christ will return. So don't make your life just about today. Remember what is coming. And as God's people, we don't live as though today is all we've got, right? We live knowing there is a tomorrow for which we will stand before our Creator and this allows us, this frees us to live whole lives and hopeful lives. Whole in the sense that there's no longer a sacred and secular divide. What, we're, what we do in private and what we do in public is brought all before God. Whether you're sweeping the floors or whether you're talking to your neighbor about Jesus Christ, all matters before God's divine wisdom and judging eye. But it also allows us to live hopeful lives. And the only way the preacher could look forward with hope was because he knew the constant refrain of the Old Testament. And we talked about this a little bit last week, too. It's it's a consistent refrain, how God has revealed himself, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He tells Moses right around the Exodus as he's revealing his nature to his people afresh. The preacher, he knew his lifetime of guilt and searching and chasing after wind. But he also knew of God's everlasting goodness. But we know something more than the preacher, don't we? For we don't just have a God who's over the sun, who's waiting. We've heard the good news of the gospel, that God came and lived in our paradoxical world mixed with joys and pain, with happiness and sadness. This life under the sun, and he experienced the absurdity of our life under the fall. And he intimately knows our lives when we feel lost, broken, and discouraged. It was in Jesus Christ that he displayed his love most evidently and perfectly. That when he not only came to live life under the sun, but he went up to a cross, and he died for us, and then he went down deeper into the grave. For three days, it seemed like the absurdity of life had won. That chaos had had its final word on what it meant within reality. But it didn't have its final word. And this is what defines us as well as Christians, that three days later Christ rose and defeated the most formidable foe in humanity, death. That temporary reality that we all experience as human beings. No longer do we have to fear temporary as human beings, but we look forward with eternal hope because we have hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We started off this morning seeing life as smoke, seeing how many times we may even compare with Jay Gatsby or Don Draper. They were self-made men, like the preacher, and they had everything But Gatsby and Draper, they ended miserably, but not with the preacher. He ends in hope, because he stood in awe before the one over the sun, and we now stand in awe before the one who came under the sun, and reigns once again over the sun, and we look forward with hope, that life is not a vapor, life is not smoke any longer, but we have hope for eternal existence in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning. We echo the words of the preacher that many times life feels meaningless. If all we do is look with our five senses, Lord, and we, 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 we throw away the eyes of faith, it can feel absurd. And because of the fall, many of it feels and is real in its brokenness. Give us the eyes of faith. To remember and to live with the end in mind, to look forward to the great day of Christ's returning, and to therefore live not allowing empty things to try and fill us up, but enjoying life when opportunities arise to do so. Your grace is magnificent. Your goodness is phenomenal. The fact that we get to stand in Christ, and when you look at us, you see Jesus because of what Christ has done on the cross. And we have hope of a resurrection because of what Christ has done out of the grave. May we rest in that and our lives be transformed for it. In Jesus' name, amen.